Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyse each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Please drive to highlight a crowd. It's a sunny, warm Saturday in September 2022. Summer is stretching into fall. I'm still swimming at the lake. It's early in the morning as I make my way to the lovely seaside community of Qualicum Beach. The windows on my little Honda are down and the music is turned up. If it weren't for the rake and the gloves in the back of my car, I could be destined for the beach. But today I'm joining a small group of Lisa Marie Young's family and friends to search for Lisa. I turn off the highway and take a left onto a quiet residential street. I pull in beside a trail leading into the forest just minutes from the heart of town. Today we're searching the woods behind a property once owned by Jerry Adair. Jerry was Christopher Adair's grandmother. And a reminder, Jerry was the owner of the Red Jag, the vehicle driven by Chris, the man who Lisa was last seen with the night she vanished. It's my understanding that Chris stayed with his grandmother from time to time, and that he may have been staying there on that fateful Canada Day weekend, 2002. This property sits far back from the road, on a pleasant street with ocean views. Today, Jerry's former home would be listed for over a million dollars. It's currently owned by a couple who use it as a vacation property. They don't live on the coast. The backyard was once searched by police, although I'm told it was something of a cursory search. I've spoken with one of the owners. She tells me she doesn't believe that anything is here. She would have sensed it. The house backs onto a stretch of forest and a trail with railway tracks further back. On this morning, it's busy with dog walkers and retirees out for their morning stroll. As search members begin to gather, I stop to chat with some neighbors. They're curious about what's going on. One resident comes by with her lovely dog, and she tells me her pup was a therapy dog. I'm grateful to stop and pet this gentle friend for a moment. It helps calm my nerves. Because as much as this day is bright and the group is friendly, our task is grim. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Where is Lisa? An update to Island Crime Season 1. This episode is called Hornet's Nest. Lisa's friends and family have pulled together this small group. There's about a dozen or so of us here, and I'm honoured to be part of this circle. I've grown up in Nanaimo, and so I've known about Lisa. When I found out this search was happening, I just thought it's something I can do to help. Having experience in my own family with murdered and missing women, knowing what that could be like for family members to not know. 
I was uh, a part of a homicide grief group, and in that group, uh, we had, of course, uh, people whose cases were solved, and they were, you know, on their way to court, and then there were the people who had unsolved murders, and then there were the people whose loved ones were just missing. And I always felt, like my husband as well, we felt that um, the people who didn't know what happened to their loved ones were the most lost. You know, it was really emotional the first first time that we came out here and saw the property and connected um, to the fact that you know Lisa may have been here and this could have been you know the place where she was um, she was left um, to bring answers for her family and maybe some justice <laughs> she sure has an army behind her Lisa it's a beautiful fall morning you could be doing a thousand different things. Why this? I think that uh, people who are have had loved ones murdered, they kind of need to support each other. I mean, what else would I be doing? Shopping at the mall or, you know, something like that. And, you know, this thing about murder and whatnot is always on my mind anyways. So I might as well participate in something that I think may end up with an outcome of some kind. You know, because where we're searching here is pretty viable, in my opinion. It's kind of a mixed emotional thing because, of course, we're here with hope in our hearts that we'll find something that will help to find justice for Lisa. But then it's also really sad because there's a possibility we might find her remains. So I guess I just want them to know... On this first day, I'm unprepared for how difficult the terrain will be. Yeah, so we, we sometimes joke and say that we feel like we're in a mini version of Jurassic Park. We've got ferns and ground cover and big giant trees and climbing ivy and all sorts of different things. So, you know, we're, we're searching in a terrain that um, is not always easy. You don't have good visibility and it's a lot of work. So we're clearing, we're moving material, um, we're being incredibly thorough and going through what is essentially an untamed forest area. I'm here to document the process, but I'm also here to dig in and help. Under the beautiful blue bright sky, working away in this lovely rainforest surrounded by nice people, it's easy to forget that our task is serious, and it's heartbreaking for some. Lisa's foster sister, Carol Ann, is here. She is close to tears as she rakes through the dense brush, looking for signs of Lisa. Then, suddenly, there are shouts. Carol Ann has unearthed something, something unexpected, a hornet's nest. She is stung multiple times. Carol Ann leaves the search. She's in pain, and it's all too much. I think about that hornet's nest. It's a perfect metaphor for the work we've been doing here. This search, the questions, the digging around, we are stirring up trouble. There are those who would prefer we not be here, that this area, that Lisa's story, be left alone. This search will anger some, and it's more than that. Memories, once forgotten, are resurfacing. Old wounds are being reopened. 
If finding Lisa means making some people uncomfortable or even angry, then so be it. Jerry has been deceased for over a decade. I talked to a few folks who knew her. Her family describes her as a busy, successful businesswoman. She was a top realtor here. Others use words like pistol. Another says scoundrel. After Lisa vanished, Jerry tried to distance her grandson and her family from the investigation into Lisa's disappearance. Lisa's dad, Don Young, told me she threatened to sue them when they papered the town with a poster of her red jag. We come back to this area more than once. The second time, we're joined by Dr. Kristen Barnett. So, does that make sense? And that way we can just, like, you would hold that line. She's an assistant professor at UBC's Department of Anthropology. Dr. Burnett guides us through a more structured pattern of grid searching. We were clearing the land and just looking for anything, just trying to find some trace of her. I'm using metal detectors that I've borrowed from a good friend, and we're metal detecting the ground. Amanda, do you want a metal detect? I don't know how consistent the metal detectors are. And then also visual scans for looking for anything um, that may be of interest. And we have a list of things that we're also looking for that Lisa may have had with her. And then we're flagging those things we find. And She shows us how to flag items. And when we find something? Um, so we have found... Um, you know, definitely some garbage, which shows that there's always a, a trace of people, even where it looks like there isn't. Um, but we have found some some items as well, some personal items, um, jewelry, and am I even allowed to say that? Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, jewelry, some cigarette wrappers, and um, animal bones as well. And w- what is that like for you or for the people finding these things? What, I mean... Finding something is exciting and anxiety-inducing at the same time. Um, It really sort of energizes everybody that's here because it, it serves a purpose in showing us that it is possible to find things that have been lost and it is possible to uncover pieces of trash or coins or jewelry that have been left untouched for 20 years and that makes us feel like what we're doing is the right thing and there is hope to find Lisa Um, but on the flip side of that it's extremely challenging because when we find evidence that isn't connected your heart drops and you feel like you're not doing enough and just wishing with everything in you that there would be something that could connect these pieces and bring Lisa home. Anything we find, we document and hand over to police if there's a possibility the items could be linked back to Lisa. Yeah, so as you're walking, anybody that has a metal detector? Um, if everybody just goes ahead and Each time, we're better equipped, emotionally and with improved gear. Lisa's group asked supporters to assist in buying search items from Amazon. People want so badly to help. There are new rakes, safety vests, metal detectors, flagging tape, shears. Our small group is now very well outfitted. And we're well cared for too. 
Dream Donuts, a local donut maker, donates the most beautiful donuts I've ever seen. There's coffee, too, from McDonald's, where Lisa used to work. It's an extremely tough area to search. It's thickly forested, with rotten, down trees and branches, rocks, and salal bushes. Being out here actually looking for Lisa, watching her sister break down in tears, reminds me how much is on the line. As I drive home, I decide to make a call I should have made much earlier in my research. The name Willie Curry is well known in Lisa's hometown of Nanaimo. He has a lengthy criminal record for crimes including possession for the purpose of trafficking, criminal harassment, attempt to obstruct justice, unlawful confinement, and assault. Willie Curry has been described to me as well-feared. His is one of a handful of names that consistently get raised as allegedly being involved in some way in Lisa's disappearance. In earlier episodes, I made a decision not to name Willie Curry, and I decided not to call him. Because outside of persistent rumor, I was never able to find a single person who could actually confirm Curry knew Lisa and no one who was able to place him out that night with Lisa the night she disappeared. Curry was a champion boxer. His alias is Killer Curry. This is not someone I approach lightly. But it turns out William Curry is open to talking about Lisa's case. Here's my surprising conversation with William Curry. This is William. Uh, my name is Laura Palmer. I'm a journalist here on the island. Okay, yeah, that's fine. What, what's, what's up? Well, do, do you have a minute to talk? Yeah. It's an, it's an okay time? No, that's fine. Yeah, it's okay. I've been working on um, a series of stories over the past little while about the disappearance of a girl named Lisa Marie Young. Okay. And you... You may or or may not know, but sometimes your name comes up as someone who was around that night. Well, I wouldn't. I I was around, but I didn't. I've never met Lisa in my life, and the police also they they were like notified that like I was maybe a suspect or something. But I did do a polygraph. And I said to them, like, I wasn't going to do the polygraph. And then I said, okay, I'll do it as long as the family gets a phone call right away with the results. And they said that they would do that. So uh, they got the results and it was negative and uh, it's on to the family. Because it's been 20 years now and there's so many rumors around what happened that night that your name continues to get there's somebody that put in the on the website that she was last seen at my house that's a clock of shit that i've never met lisa marie young in my life like i have i have never met her i don't even like i was running an after hours club at that time downtown in denial i believe i was i think i was this was in uh, 2002 
Yeah, I believe I was running an after-hours club downtown Nanaimo. And I didn't drive a red Jag, but Jerry O'Dare's grandson did. He's the one with the red Jag. That's who you should be phoning. I have been trying to talk to him, and I, I do believe that's where I'm going to find answers. Well, what happened was, I what I did was I went up to... Um, what do you call that place? Qualicum, where his grandmother was a, she's a real estate agent, and I got her, I was going to get her to show me a house and like take, like I was going to act like I was buying a house, and what I want to do is just get close to her and to see, uh, how she was, like her reaction and stuff. And she was like, when I got to their office, she was a nervous wreck. She wasn't even able to come out and show me a place. But that's as far as I went with that. I didn't go any further with that. Yeah. So, I don't know. It seems like she was kind of losing it a bit. I don't know how old she is now, but she was pretty old then. She's, she's or getting deceased. up there in the... Pardon, pardon me? She's deceased. Oh, well, okay. See, this is what I was going to mention, that that after Jerry O'Gara passed away, I believed that the police were going to open the investigation up and then... Go after that, Trisella. A clarification. William Curry here is simply stating his own opinion. The police have told me that Lisa's case has always remained open. Although, of course, I think it's fair to say over the past two decades, there are certainly periods where it's been more active than others. Curry tells me he didn't know Chris back then, but he becomes aware of his reputation through what he describes as a reliable source. He was a bit of, um, uh, from what I understand, uh, he was a bit of a uh, creep even when there was, used to be a dance club in town, a strip club there down on uh, Halliburton Street. And uh, the, the dancers used to have their, their the door where their, their rooms were, and it was always open, right? But whenever this guy showed up there, the door was shut. Like They wouldn't have the door open because he was such a freak. And it came from a really reliable source, that information there. What I did was I went with uh, my friend um, uh, Jimmy Wu, who is a Vietnamese guy in town. And uh, what, because I felt really bad for the family. So what I would do, I would, I would go out and I would drive through the gravel roads and stuff like this. And whenever I found any pieces of clothing, whatever else, I would mark it on a map. And I would put it in a bag, and I would drop it off at the police station. Because I thought nobody gave a damn, and I, it really bothered me that nobody seemed to care, because there was no searches for her or anything like that. And so I thought, oh, I'll just do it on my own time. And then what happened was, I believe that uh, some of my so-called good friends got wind of that and said, oh, yeah, that I was just trying to cover it up because I was guilty of that. Of guilty of, of hurting that lady, which it was not true at all. There's, there's no end of rumors connected with Lisa's disappearance. That's for sure. Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, is yeah, and that must be so difficult on the family to listen to all that stuff. Like, just crazy. Did you ever hear the discussion about possibly some kind of film being made that night? Did that ever, did you ever hear about that? Something about a snuff movie? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard, yeah, I heard it all, yeah. And what do you, yeah. what do you make of that? Oh, well, 
no, I think that just talked. Yeah, no, no, there was, I don't think that's true at all. If anybody sat there and never said they've seen it, then uh, I wouldn't believe them, put it that way. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't believe them. Throughout our conversation, he repeatedly raises his concern for Lisa's family. Earlier in this series, Lisa's father, Don, talked about being approached by someone with an offer of help. Here's what that meeting looked like from Curry's perspective. I met her dad. Well, what happened was I met her dad, right? First, I phoned him up and I said, hi, my name is Willie Curry. I want to let you know that I care about your daughter being gone or missing, right? And that I go, I'll do anything you want me to do, I told him. Like, I phoned him up and I said that. Then a week went by and I was still feeling helpless, right? So I phoned him up and I met him at Tim Hortons. And I said to him, listen, I'm, I'm your soldier, I'm your guy, and if whatever you need done, just you can ask me, and right now I'm going over to the mainland, I was asking permission from him if I could hang up some posters of his daughter. And he broke down and started crying and stuff, and I helped him up, and, you know, he told me the whole story about uh, Chris and stuff like that, so he didn't use Chris's name, but he would just use the name O'Dare, and, um, uh... Yeah, so I've met him before. I don't know if he has told you that or not. He he did, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I met him, yeah. And that's why I felt really bad, like, um, the fact that um, I went and met him, and then all of a sudden my name gets thrown in there. Right, because here's what when I got when I was I would drive around in Iowa and I had a picture of her in my um, both sides of my van on the windows, right? And one of my friends he says to me, "Holy, what are you doing driving around with that? You know they're gonna blame me for that." I go, "Blame me for what? Because she's only missing at the time." I go, "Blame me for what?" And he goes, "Oh, blame me for for, for knocking her off." I said, "Holy shit, dude, what are you talking about?" Right, so that's where. I know that for a fact, that's where the rumor started about me having anything to do with Lisa's disappearance. I was going out, I, I felt horrible. I couldn't, some nights I couldn't even, like, uh, I don't know. I just felt, I went through a change in life. I, I went through a change where um, um, God came into my life and Jesus and stuff and, and stuff. And that was, I believe, before that happened to Lisa. And so when that happened, and I was reading about the paper, how they um, uh, had a search for her, and then they canceled the search. And I was like, oh, that family just must be going through just turmoil, right? So I thought, what could I do to help? Well, I know, I'll phone them up and offer myself to them as a, as a soldier, right? And uh, like I said, a week went by after that. And um, I phoned them, I met them. And I went over, hung up some posters up in Surrey of his daughter. And um, uh, when I got back, I would go driving down, like I say, dirt roads and stuff like this. And I would map out where, like, you know, sometimes you see clothes at the side of the road or whatever else down these dirt roads, whatever else. Right? So and I would go down really, really rough dirt roads. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like uh, where most vehicles couldn't go, right? Yeah, and when I would find clothes, whatever else, I would pick them up, put them in a bag, and I would draw a map to where they were, exactly how many kilometers, and I would drop it off at the police station. I would just ring the doorbell and put it down and leave. Did, did you ever find anything? Yeah, we found uh, separate 
like clothes and stuff like that. Yeah. But but anything, any sign of Lisa? Any? No. no. Well, I don't know if the police followed up on that or not. Yeah. Like I don't know because what I do is I just put it by the door, and then basically just ring the buzzer at the front door of, of their office downtown. Right. Yeah, because I didn't want it to be like looked like I was like uh, some kind of hero or anything like that. I just wanted to put my put put my time in where I genuinely genuinely cared. After Lisa's disappearance, he says he offers to be a soldier for the family. He's searching for Lisa and even attempts to learn what Jerry Adair might know. So I ask Willie Curry what his understanding is of what happens after Lisa gets into Chris's car that last time. Lisa Marie got in that jag with that fella. She was last seen, she was at um, house and they had a suite that they rented upstairs and the red jag stopped by there on the way out. And I think she might've went in the house, grabbed something or whatever else and then left. Yeah, but yeah, that's pretty sure that's a fact. But she never came by my house, never. I don't even know who this Chris guy is. Never seen him. Wouldn't you never even, couldn't even tell you what color his hair is. Like, I don't know who this guy is. I know of him. Yeah. Through well, the red jags, right? And that's another thing. When I talked to the dad, right, and he was at uh, Tim Hortons with me, when I talked to him, he sat there and he said, when they went to interview this Chris guy, his wife was there, and his wife like he was listening to what he was saying. I don't know what he said, but we'll listen to what he's saying and that she had to go leave the room because she was gonna get sick from the way the guy's attitude was. Mm. It got so um uh, intense that his wife had to like leave because she was gonna get sick. It's it's just awful. Willie talks to me about what's going on in his life back then. In the period after Lisa goes missing, he's training a lot. He's having success as an amateur boxer. He fondly recalls his kids coming to see him fight at the Civic Arena. But his marriage is a losing battle. He's going through a divorce. There's a restraining order. He goes to jail for uttering a threat to his wife. William Curry says he wants me to understand he wasn't hiding or running away at the time rumors about his involvement in Lisa's disappearance were beginning to take hold. Back then, he says he does what he can to clear his name for himself and for Lisa's family. I tell him I regret not calling him earlier. I can understand why you wouldn't want to call because, like, you know, it's, it's opening up like a... I just say a can of worms for me a little bit because I didn't like I didn't I didn't hang my head at all I didn't do anything of the sort right even when after I heard that all oh, this shit that was going on the only thing people I felt real bad for that I needed to get uh, to let them know that it's not true was the parents because me having to meet him and then him hearing this stuff it must have just drove him crazy like it like and I didn't want him to think that I was part of it. I wanted him to think that I was part of the solution. But like I said, I'm in, now, did you know that I did a polygraph? Yes, I had you, I heard that. Yes, I did do a polygraph. Uh, it, was at, uh, it was at Wilkinson Road at the time, uh, the, in the correctional place up in um, Victoria. And there was an East Indian guy and Mike Deegan 
and a couple other officers there, and I was nervous as hell. Like, I took the stuff off a couple of times and said, holy shit, how do I know you're not trying to frame me? How do I know you're not trying to frame me? I go, but my heart's beating fast. Will that matter? They said, no, 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 no. So I trusted them. See, my lawyer and everybody else said, do not do it. Don't do it. And I said, no, but I, I want to do it. I want I, I want to hear my name for the family. For the family knows that I had nothing to do with it. And so they said that they were going to phone the family right after, right after it was done, the results. And I said, okay, then let's do it. And I did it. And the East Indian guy who was doing it said, 100%, you're telling the truth. That woman, that I, when they asked me if I had anything to do with uh, Lisa Marie's disappearance, no. Did I have anything to do with uh, the murder of Lisa Marie Young, no. And yeah, 100%. Telling the truth. I think about the hornet's nest Lisa's sister kicked over in the woods. To William Curry, resurfacing Lisa's case really is a can of worms. So much time has passed. Here's how Willie Curry, the young tough guy, the man with the Killer Curry alias, now describes himself. I'm 54 years old now, you know, and I've got, uh, you know, grandchildren and stuff like this, and I really don't want to go into the newspaper or anything like that. But what he says he does want is for Lisa's family, for the public, to know he took a polygraph test and passed it. Well, if they need my consent for them to release the information about the polygraph, then they can phone me up and I'll, or I can go down there, whatever I have to do to get it released. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much, Laura. I asked the lead on Lisa's case, Marcus Muntner, to confirm this information. Here's the response I get back. I can't comment on the details of who police may have spoken to, as it can compromise the investigation and telegraph to others that their cooperation with police will simply be released prior to any court proceedings, where it would naturally get released. A polygraph is an investigative tool, and it's not admissible in court because it's not infallible. It can be used by police to assist in an investigation. However, it does not clear a person outside of independent evidence. Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyse each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. I've consulted with, you know, new members of my family and my wife especially um she just thinks it's great that i'm sharing this information because i've always wanted to and just been kind of scared to that's the voice of a man who briefly dated lisa the year before she vanished he sends me this note by way of introduction i would like to share my story with you about knowing lisa back in 2001 I just hope my story may provide more info to help find her. I'd like my identity 
to be kept anonymous, please? Yeah, originally born and raised in Rimo, I used to work close by to the McDonald's that she worked at, and you know, I'd seen her there, and she'd even like helped me at the at the till a couple times, I guess, and and then I actually met her more formally uh, downtown at a at a bar. I think it was I think it was the press room, to be honest. It's going back more than twenty years now, but um, well, her and I actually. I wouldn't call it dating, dated, but we hung out and we, she liked me and I liked her. I agreed to keep his name confidential, but I know who he is. 20 years on, Lisa's memory still haunts him. And I think it's fair to say he has some unresolved guilt. My friends at the time were quite racist i don't think they intended on it and were being vicious or anything but it it played a big part of my story with with her so i think it might just be easier if i just tell you the whole story like how everything went he's sharing his story in the hope that it could help with the investigation here's how he describes meeting lisa You know, she'd work in a McDonald's and she was always bubbly and very friendly and just looked like she loved working there. Like I've heard numerous people on your podcast say about her. And um, I just, you know, I think that attracted me to her. And when I met her at the press room, it was the end of the night. Everyone was kind of leaving and they were all kind of hanging out at the entrance or exit, whatever. And I, I saw her there and I said hi. <clears throat> and back then, I was 21, maybe it was 2001. It was it was about um, March, maybe February of 2001, and I always just ended up driving my friends, so I hadn't been drinking, hence probably why I remember all this. Um, and um, I just went up to her and said hi, and said that uh, she looked nice because she's all dressed up to go out, and I hadn't seen her like that. I thought you know she always looked at McDonald's um, outfit and we just chatted a little bit and then I said okay well you know I gotta go I gotta get going my friends are all ready to go and I'm driving them home and she gave me a kiss on the cheek and I think she passed me her number I I'm I'm not sure on that but whatever I was kind of surprised by it I thought that was really nice of her a nice gesture and uh, off we went and um, I went with my friends and she stayed and it wasn't too much longer. Um, I remember I was going to hang out with some friends and watch this boxing match. I think it was like a retired boxer, possibly Mike Tyson. That's all I really remember about that boxing match, but it was a big event and um, we, nobody had cell phones it seemed like back then. So I was using my friend's phone and she called, I called her, that's what it was. and. She didn't answer, but then she called me back and said to come over and watch a movie with her. So I went over and this is the first time we've really like, hung out together. And she invited me over to her apartment. It was close to Wellington School and we were watching a movie and it was just kind of like <laughs> awkward, like sitting there. And um, but the next thing you know, I we were sitting closer and I wasn't really pursuing anything, but it just kind of 
happened where um, we started making out and I like I had to go home because I had to work the next day. After that, we'd I'd say to, to not make the story go too long, we'd run into each other downtown on the weekends. Like she would, it seemed like she knew I would be there. So she'd end up kind of running into me there. And we talked once, um, she asked me if I was going out and I said, yeah, and I was interested in seeing her. So I met her down there and like the first thing she did was just like talk about, she wanted to get into business with her dad and she was really excited about it. Like she just had this like really positive and energetic uh, outlook on life and just was looking forward to do something, do something in business with her dad. And I wish I could remember, but it's been so long. And I happen to know who her dad is because he delivered goods to the you know business that I worked at. Yeah, it might have just been a, a new idea that she had. And just, she just seemed really excited about it. And um, she was, she always wanted to talk about that stuff. Like it wasn't, it was really mature um, conversation. And I, I was interested, like I was like, oh, that's really cool. Like I didn't, you know, expect to hear you say stuff like that. Our conversation begins with a reference to his racist friends. Now listen as he describes how that impacts his relationship with Lisa. Two things started happening. Um, my friends started noticing that she was seemed to always show up when I went out with my friends and. Again, I was driving, like I wasn't, I was just a, a guy that always just drove and um, they'd be partying and, you know, ribbing me, like bugging me, oh, there's Lisa again, she's here to see you. And like, so? <laughs> like, what's the big deal? I think there was one more time where her and I ended up back at her place sleeping together. And anyway, shortly after these two episodes, and meeting at the bars and stuff downtown, I I was at work and a colleague came up to me and he said, hey, you know, my wife works at McDonald's um, and she works with Lisa. And, and I was like, oh, yeah, right. I, that's right. I forgot about that. And she's like, yeah, did, you know, are you guys like dating or are you guys together? Because, you know, and this guy knew me. He's he's like, I, I, I had no idea you, you knew her and she knew you and all that stuff. And I said, oh, yeah, no, we're just kind of getting to know each other and we've hung out a few times. I didn't want to get into details, none of his business. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, my wife told me that she said, like, she's super, like, pumped about meeting you and, like, she thinks you're the one and such a good guy and stuff. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Ooh. Like, I don't know if that was a, a direct quote, but it kind of kind of shocked me a little bit and made me a little anxious. I don't know why, but I guess this next part that I'm going to tell you may have something to do with it. Um, once again, downtown, like this would seem like what everybody did back then. I was downtown and she showed up at the, I mean, the nightclubs changed names. I'm trying to remember. I think it was a jungle. And we were there, you know, the night went on and it was time to drive my friends home because yeah, it was 
and the bar was closing and we went over across the street like where the parkade is and wheeled out and she appeared with a, a friend like coming around the corner walking and one of my friends took him to himself to roll the window down and yell her name and called her a slut like yelled it as loud as he possibly could and i turned up my music and i was like i i stupidly honked my horn i was so mad that he was doing that and i had like never instructed my friends to say anything like that before um, especially to her and i just was like it made me feel like the worst person in the world i was so mad at my friend for doing that and the, i could just see like the, the, the like a deflated because she knew it was my car right like she knew it was my car and i'm driving away and this dickhead is part of me but yelling this out at her and i just it just really bothered me and and i could just see it really upset her and i just took off i honestly can't even remember if i called her to apologize about that um, i may have but that just seemed to be like a repetitive thing with my friends and they kept like making racist comments and yelling stuff like that out the window <clears throat> And as a young 20, younger 21 year old, I just, and what, what I heard from my colleague, you know, those things combined going on, I just kind of think I, we just lost touch after that. In my time working on Lisa's story, I often hear people trying to make the case that the fact that Lisa was Indigenous didn't play a role in what happened that night, and that it was not a factor in the investigation. I think about that as I listen to the description of the friends' attitudes at the time. They definitely were being jerks. Like, I was... I haven't really been friends with that guy since. Yeah, I think back then, like... I don't know what was wrong with people. Like, I tried to explain that I had a... I had respect for her and I liked her and I wouldn't be talking to her unless that was the case. So like, what's your guys' problem? But I just couldn't seem to get it through their heads. Like, it was almost like, oh, we can't, we can't believe that you would hang out with someone like that. I'm like, I'm almost scared to say that myself just because of how awful it is. You know what I mean? Like, from then till now, things have changed so much, but that's kind of how people talked back then, it seemed like. Like, it's awful. A few years ago, I spoke with a family member of Christopher Adair. They recalled someone close to Chris blaming Lisa for getting into the car with Chris that night, suggesting that she was drunk and responsible for putting herself in that position. Well, that's offensive for all kinds of reasons, including an implied racism. So I wanted to also include this perspective on that point. You know, I don't think I recall her. There's really no memory of me seeing her drinking um, at the times that I met her. Like, I, I, cool thing is I have a photographic memory and I remember certain things like very vividly. And it always just seemed like we were standing there talking. 
like her agenda to go out was to come and hang out with me and talk to me and not get bombed like some people do at nightclubs back then especially um but yeah no i don't have any recollection of her being excessively drunk or me drinking at all like i just no as we talk he also remembers the sad detail of the last time he saw lisa i think that that friend yelling out the window kind of just ended things like she probably really upset her and i didn't man up and go apologize and she probably just was like oh yeah well that when there goes that you know i have no idea uh it bothers me to this day and that's what makes me think i really i didn't actually call and apologize um or i might have tried but i don't know but, you know i met someone else too right before i left like about 10 days before i left to go to back to school out east and i went through the drive through late at the mcdonald's she worked at and and this new girl was with me and lisa was at the window to like deal with us that made me feel terrible too like you know there was another opportunity to say sorry but the girl i was with we weren't even dating like we were just like we just met but we were hanging out and she, she had no idea that i knew her and i just tried to keep it a secret by not saying anything and lisa like i could tell she was mad at me but she was polite and professional and thank you have a nice day took the order and like handed it up through the window and just kind of gave me a dirty look and walked away um I mean, I deserved it. He goes back to school in Ontario. Lisa remains in Nanaimo. And then the following summer, he learns that Lisa has vanished. And like that next year went by so fast when I heard that she was missing and well, obviously couldn't believe it and I just thought it was terrible and I I had known knew her and I had an experience with her and like I just felt like I wanted to say something but I didn't know who to talk to and I felt like if I went to the police it was just like well what what is this information going to really do other than maybe put me on the record and then I'm this into this guy that I just really didn't know I was scared just to, to I was embarrassed I guess about what had happened and so I've been been kind of holding on to it since and I just thought it would be something that I should share Then I heard your stories and podcasts and I'm like, okay, no, this is there's a safe way to do this. His memories of his relationship with Lisa are tinged with his own embarrassment and guilt. But Lisa stands tall in his recollections. I I remember thinking this this girl's seems to have a really good head on her shoulders and um is I just respect I had a really a lot of respect for her. Like I don't know what I was expecting, but just you know, when I met her and we talked, I thought, "Hey, this this person's really cool and has a game plan and such a great person and always talking about the future and what she wanted to do in Canucks. I remember that now like I forgot all about that. That's my favorite team. We talk about the Canucks and I had 
you know, lots in common. And I think her and I really did like each other and may have ended up having a relationship with each other, but this, these friends of mine, and it was really frustrating and, and disappointing, obviously what happened between the two of us, but to hear what happened to her. I did. I've talked to a counselor about this, and I think my counselor's concern was that I was blaming myself. Like this happened to her because honestly, I did think for a while that what happened with my friend yelling and being racist and our relationship going from something that looked promising to like dead in the water, like you're an asshole type of person, you know, may have been the last time she um, trusted another guy or something, but. It, it, it upset me for years. Some of the details he tells me are just too personal to make public in a podcast. But with the man's permission, I share what he tells me with the RCMP. I just get this feeling uh, after I listened to your last podcast that she is going to be found. I just got this good feeling. I just call it a good feeling because it's it's what everyone wants. Um, so I think that's coming, um, and it's and me coming forth and like others that may hear any of this or be you know the investigator you know put some pieces together after. I mean, I'm hoping that that helps. Um, so yeah, I will talk to them if they want to. In reporting on Lisa's story, I hear so many regrets about what people did or didn't do back then. There is a lot of trauma, heartbreak, and pain still wrapped up in Lisa's story. I just think it's so important that Lisa's family and loved ones know that people are still, we still know about Lisa, we won't forget her. Um, We're here to support them and to do whatever we can to, to help. Also, I think every time um, we've been here, come out with a lot of hope because we have to keep looking. It just doesn't feel like we can stop until there's an answer. You know, and and hearing the stories from Lisa's family and Lisa's friends through the podcast and, and meeting some of them in person just really makes it so much more real. There's there's a lot of us that are committed and I think we'll continue to give up our, our sunny Saturdays to keep searching. Kicking over the hornet's nest, even now, 20 years later, getting everything out in the open could yet bring answers and justice for Lisa Marie Young. I'm Laura Palmer. This is an update to Where is Lisa? Island Crime Season 1. Please take a moment to rate and review Island Crime. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. 
Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.